Welcome to episode 41 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. So we are continuing in sort of the middle of the Gospels this week. Mm -hmm. We're into Uh, the meat of them. And I think one of the big stories that we get to in our readings is Jesus' feeding of the multitudes uh, between... There's one story that seems to be told in all four of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And then there's, I guess, a second event or a second episode that just Matthew and Mark uh, describe. Yeah. In that one, we're not we're not planning to focus on that one too much, but it is a little disappointing that they express similar consternation about what they're supposed to do after already having seen Jesus do this once before. But I suppose that is exactly how human beings are. God takes care of us every day, and then every day we question whether or not it's going to happen. It's true. But I thought maybe we could start, you could maybe just fill in some of the context here of this miracle. I mean, I think that the just the base nature of what's happening, that Jesus is taking a little bit of food and turning it into enough to feed a crowd. But I think that one of the one of the cultural assumptions in the text that we don't necessarily know just by reading it is, you know, that our our relationship with our access to food is very different than these Judean mm-hmm. peasants in the first century. And so I wondered if you could kind of speak into that a little bit just to kind of give us a fuller picture of of the significance of this miracle, because it isn't purely just, oh, wow, Jesus did a neat trick with somebody's yeah. lunch. So these are people, most of whom who have never had a full stomach. So you know that feeling you have when you've eaten until you're satisfied and you actually don't want any more food. You're not stopping because the food is gone. You're stopping because you're done. Um, Many of the people in this part of the world would never experience that feeling. And so he's not just feeding them till they're full, which is a line that we, we miss or just pass over because, my goodness... We're used to it. We're used to it. Um, But people reading this early and then also the people experiencing it, that would have been a remarkable experience. And so he's not just feeding the multitudes. He's feeding them until they're completely filled. And this is the context of this in so many ways is um, just so, I don't know, it grabs us. Because the story that happens right before this one is that Jesus hears about John the Baptist being killed. And so so he retreats because he's sad, right? He tries to get away from everybody and they follow him. And so if you've ever been in a situation when you're trying to get some alone time and people will not leave you alone, Ben, have you ever ever been in that situation before? Uh, Yeah, a few times. A few times? Yeah, my whole life. (laughs) And... And people will not leave you alone. Now, imagine that it's not just a few people, but it's thousands of people. They've come to you hungry and they want you to do something for them. It's not what we consider the miracle, but I think it's possible that the greater miracle here is that Jesus's response to them is compassion. Hmm. Because that's what he does. He has compassion on them and he decides to care for them. And in spite of his grief, in spite of what's going on with him, he turns to the multitudes. He he has compassion on them. He makes it a teaching moment for the for his followers. Mm-hmm. And this abundance, this this sign of the kingdom is also shown. This is what it's like in the kingdom. Is is there's more than enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. And the people, they want to take him and make him king. 
after this. And then he retreats again because that kind of nonsense is not what he's here for. And so then he he goes away again. And so it's this this moment of him trying to retreat, being followed, having compassion, filling people's stomachs for the first time in their lives. This is one of the reasons why these people followed him all over. It's why he was so popular. Because this also isn't just 5,000 people. It's 5,000 men. Mm-hmm. And so if they've got their families with them, which they probably do, um, we in America like to think of nice four-person families, right? Two adults and two kids. Um, that was not the norm there. So we're talking, I mean, often this will get talked about as 20,000. It could have been many, many more than that. And with just a little bit of food, um, he fills them all until they're full and there's leftovers. Which leftovers is probably something that hasn't happened before. There's the, Le- the Leviticus, Leviticus bell. bell. <laughs> it has not done that all morning. I've been here since 8.15. Let's see. I feel like there aren't a ton of direct Leviticus uh, callbacks in the feeding of the 5,000. Well, I'd there? say that God being the source of life, well, life sure, sure. sustaining I mean, life going out you know, from him. You could say that about Genesis and Exodus, and I'm saying, you know, kind of le- specifically Leviticus. Clean and unclean foods. Well, They're clean true. foods here. That is true. Only the men are being counted. Preference for men <laughs> over women. <laughs> Just that so many people, you know, came to him that so many of them wouldn't have really had any apprehension of what was happening as it was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no microphones, you know, or anything like there's no jumbotrons. So like you're just in this masses mass of people and then all of a sudden food is being passed. Well yeah, the average people there don't know that he's feeding them with right. a few loaves of bread and a few know fish. what's happening, you know. Or who or what you know, so it's just yeah, just it's it's it is just this amazing thing. You mentioned there, yeah, that they, they try to make him king and I guess maybe my first question would be why, why, what, what's the connection between food and kingship in their minds? Well, I think that we can, we can take this. There's a rabbit hole here, but I think the simplicity of it is that these are hungry people Mm. and this man just fed them. Mm -hmm. And if you want to earn the loyalty and even the extreme loyalty of hungry people, feed them. Mm-hmm. No, when, yeah, I, that, I think that's right. I just, yeah, yeah. again, I he think provided. because our, the availability, availability of food for us is just so different that it just, you know, it may not be quite as evident, but yeah, yeah he provided for them. And, and uh, I mean, imagine being a parent <laughs> for free <laughs> and watching your child for the first time in their life, like hold their stomach because they're full. Mm-hmm. I don't want to think about the bowel movements that happened later, but no. the, uh, the, the feeding part was wonderful. Yeah. And then connected with that king idea, you said that Jesus hid himself because he hadn't he w- he wasn't here for that nonsense. And I'm not I'm not just trying to pick apart what you said, yeah. but just to say like, well, but I mean, he is like the gospel is about Jesus becoming king. So like, why was this not? Because the a only way that or, an army is going wanted. to yeah, the only way that an army is going to make him king is by force. Mm. Um, and he was not here for a militaristic overthrow of the current government. Mm-hmm. He was, that was not explicitly not his purpose. And it was really difficult for them to figure that out. I mean, mm-hmm. because that's the only category they had in their mind and reasonably right. so throughout when you history. you say by force, you mean like the forceful overthrow of the people who currently think yes, that they're Herod the king. Herod and Rome. Yeah. 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 And he was, that was not Jesus. He was mm-hmm. not, he was not here for that. Mm. Um, but the, the thing that, 
that stands out to me most on this. I mean, all of that is exceptional. It's just the 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 example he sets with the compassion he has for people at low moments turns and there's no irritation in him at all. And that is something I do not have the ability. Matthew 16, but it's also it's also in Mark and Luke. Um, and in Matthew 16, we get this this story. I mean, Jesus talks about the the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He warns about false teaching. And then he turns and he asks his disciples, um, who do you say? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they give this answer. You know, some say that you're like John, you're John the Baptist coming again. And, and some say that you're Elijah reborn. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he says, well, what about you? I mean, you who travel with me, who hear everything I say and see everything I do, who've witnessed every miracle, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah the son of the living God. And so what I'd love, Ben, if you would talk a little bit about is what, what is the Messiah? Why is it important that he pairs it with the son of the living God? Um, and, and what does this have to say about what Jesus is doing? Why he's here? I mean, these are big questions, but I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about them a little bit. Yeah, I think it's important at the outset, I think just to say that, you know, one, you translated the word Christ, so in most of our Bibles, you're going to see the word Christ, and so that is just the Greek, Greekified version of the Hebrew that is, I mean, anyway, that that's what Christ means, is Messiah, <clears throat> and that Messiah means the anointed one, like anointed with oil, which is what happened when a king or a priest, and sometimes the prophets kind of were inaugurated into their office in ancient Israel, so they were anointed with oil. I think it's also important just to say that they did not equate Messiah with like divine nature. So Peter is not necessarily confessing that Jesus is God incarnate in this instance, you know, because that's not that wasn't in their box of what the Messiah necessarily was. Um, rather that the Messiah was a descendant of David, kind of the second a second coming of the anointed one. Um, so there's kind of royalty overtones that he's the true king, you know, there's priestly overtones because again, the Aaron and his sons were anointed. And so there's kind of a high priestliness attached to that. Uh, I think that most Judeans in the first century would have, and we kind of, we just talked about this with the feeding of the 5,000, would have considered the Messiah to be basically a second coming of David. So a military figure that would overthrow the Romans, that would overthrow the corrupt government in Jerusalem and bring a new golden age, you know, like under Solomon. Peter is obviously right that Jesus is a Messiah, but I think that we immediately see that he is not, he is not thinking about that. Like Peter doesn't know what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. So he's right that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, but, but they don't understand what that actually entails and, and what all that means. Because their assumptions about what it's going to mean are just completely wrong. I mean, not completely wrong, but I think because Jesus is going to overthrow the corrupt heavenly rulers, you know, over Judea and, and deliver the people from the tyranny of sin. But he's not, there's not going to be a political change, you know, uh, based on what Jesus is doing um, that they're going to have, you know, any direct part in. And so, yeah, I think that it's like, yeah, he, he, they get it in outline, but the details 
generally speaking, are are incorrect. Um, and you know, I think that this is we can't we can't blame them necessarily because I mean you can you can see how the Old Testament was sort of pointing forward to all this. Like the Old Testament doesn't say, you know, oh, but it'll really be about your sins. You know, it's like no, I mean it's couched in the language of and you'll crush your enemies and you know I mean you just read the Psalms right, help me triumph over the you know the like named groups groups of people the Edomites or or whatever else um you know I think in Matthew so I was I was reading the Luke I, I have the Luke version open uh and I think you were kind of reading paraphrasing the Matthew one and so in Luke Peter just says the Christ of God the Messiah of God not the Messiah the son of the living God that's not a huge difference I mean I think that that at least Matthew maybe is emphasizing Jesus's connection, his relational connection with God. Again, son of God doesn't like immediately mean that Jesus is God incarnate. And I'm not like denying that Jesus is God incarnate. (laughs) He is just that I think that if we rush to thinking, oh, that's what they're talking about, then we lose some of the the meaning of of these verses and and what they're they're really trying to get at. Um, And so I think that at this point, Peter is saying, you know, you are the Messiah, you're the one sent from God, you know, almost in like a prophet sense of like, we believe that when you speak, you know, you're, you're speaking what God wants us to hear. Again, Jesus then proceeds to talk about his upcoming death and Peter immediately is like, well, uh, uh, you know, that can't possibly be true. Um, So again, he's saying true things, but he doesn't understand what he is confessing. Yeah. And so one of the things that we we see in this story is a lot of time or in these stories that we read for this week are a lot of pointers to what Jesus's real purpose is and what he's what he's actually here to do. Mm -hmm. And he ties or the the Gospels tie this declaration by Peter, this this high moment when you're like, yes, Peter, great job to an immediate low point with him pulling aside and chastising Jesus. But. But for Jesus to be the Messiah, it was incredibly clear to him from the beginning of his ministry, I think from much earlier than that, he was going to have to die. It even says, I think after the second time he predicts his death, he, he tells the disciples about all the things he's going to have to suffer. Like he, he knew that his purpose as Messiah was instead of leading an armed revolt to overthrow Rome and Herod, um, was going to be to die and, and be resurrected. And that I think is... So important for us when we think about Christian living and when we think about following the Messiah, um, being willing to lay down our lives day after day. uh, It's just so easy to want to think what we're supposed to be doing is fighting. And I'm not saying there's never a time for that. But most of the time, um, the strategy of Jesus is what Christians are called to, which is suffering and, and laying down our lives. And that is how God wins victories, which is wild. And we'll talk more about that as we we get there in the Gospels. So one of the things that's distinct about John in comparison to the other Gospels is he refers to, well, he doesn't refer to all of Jesus' miracles as signs, but he highlights seven specific acts and calls them signs. Yes. So why, like, what is the, the idea behind that? Or like, what, you know, why are there seven of them? And yeah, if you could just kind of, that's a great question. That's more of a general, you know, as we're reading John, but just that it is a, a pretty big distinction between the three and and John. Well, I think John isn't 
unique in using the miracles as signs. He's mm-hmm. unique in calling them that, right? He's he's making explicit what the other authors are expecting you to come up with on your own. And the signs that, that what John is saying these point to is they point to the kingdom. They point to what it means for um, us to be a part of the kingdom, what it's like to live in God's kingdom. They tell us something about who God is and how he loves in each occasion. And so the plenty, um, the, the miracles of plenty, where things are abundantly recreated. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of these. What's life like in the kingdom? It's like no one goes hungry because there's enough. Everybody is sharing their food. That's another thing that we didn't talk about with the feeding of the 5,000. The people pass the baskets, mm-hmm. which probably was not a easy thing to do. Um, and so... All of these are signs that point forward to the the heavenly reality that is becoming real as Jesus goes through his mission and prepares to die and be resurrected, establishing his kingdom on earth, is they're telling us about who God is and how he loves us in each occasion. And you can try to make seven distinct messages out of them, and that's fine. But they, they hit the same tones over and over and over again. It's just life is different in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with all that? No, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's, it's uh, John definitely, I mean, they're, they're much more incorporated into kind of the structure of the book. Yes. You know, uh, and he kind of lingers over those miracle stories yes, more than the others. They kind of just report, and then he did this and, and, and move on. Yeah. Um, and he includes a lot more, it seems, of Jesus' teaching kind of around the miracles as mm-hmm. well. But no, I think it's just, it it is it is profitable for us when we think about miracles, the miracles of Jesus then and now. I think that the, the attitude that the people often had, you know, going back to the, the crowds with the feeding of the 5,000, they show up the next morning and want him to do it again, and he doesn't do it, you know. And I think we can sit back and go, well... But if he's God and if he can, then why wouldn't he? <laughs> and that's not a bad question to ask because I think it does get us to the heart of this. It's like, well, why indeed wouldn't he? Why didn't he heal all the sick people? Right. You know, and and I think that, that helps us understand that, yes, the miracles are demonstrations of power. On their own, they are not proof of divinity. You know, and I think that no, they're that not. Different and, streams of the church have kind of tried to take them that way, and it's like, eh. what a lot of people think that what John means by sign is that they are signs of Jesus' right. divinity, and that's just not the case. Other prophets did similar things. Elijah, Elisha, yeah. right? Um, and so it's not that on its own is not. You know, I think taken together, obviously, but uh, uh, and and so just that the, the miracles are almost like living uh, parables to some extent, like yes. they're happening to real people, but they are also proclamations of the kingdom. Yes. You know, and so it's not, I think that helps explain, you know, and Jesus kind of talks about this in the gospel of John. It's like, well, I can't, he doesn't exactly say this. I'm paraphrasing John five, but like, I can't do whatever I want. I watch what the father does. And then I do that, <laughs> you know? And, and I think that part of what he's talking about there is that, you know, yeah, there are, it's not just a free for all, you know, let's heal everybody. And, and I don't think it's a question of like, well, maybe he really couldn't. It's like, no, again, I, but I, but I don't think the point is not to say, look at the power God has because we all know the power that the creator has. Right. 
And I think that that really, it actually kicks us up into the problem of evil eventually, right? Because then you're like, well, but if God can just fix everything, why doesn't he? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that some people in, you know, in the, in the scope of the church would say, well, that must mean that he can't actually, you know, and, and, and I, I don't think we believe that. So then it must mean that there is some reason why not, you know, and I think that, that the, uh, you know, the miracles again kind of point to this idea of like Jesus could have done these things and he didn't, not for lack of compassion, not for lack of power, um, but that there is something in just sort of the way that these situations unfold that, that I guess we would say has to happen or I, I don't know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But all of that to say, you know, that the that the miracles are are heralds, they're they're appetizers, they're pointers towards the kingdom reality that is Jesus and comes in Jesus. Uh, but that doesn't mean, you know, yeah, that they're not just magic tricks. I guess that he can do yes. at whim, you know, because I think that's also part of what the devil was trying to was get trying out in the wilderness. You know, it's like, well, he could have turned those stones into bread. <laughs> well, they, <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> And so this is quibbling about language, and I know that. And you, you and I don't disagree on this. He, I think he could have done some of these things that we are talking about, like at whim. He just could not have done them in conjunction with the Father. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible for him to disobey the will of the Father mm-hmm. because he is one with the Father. And so mm-hmm. we're seeing his – and there, there's, there's this submission in Jesus to the will of the Father. And so maybe he had the power to – turn every rock in the Judean wilderness into bread um, for himself or for the hungry people. But that was not what God the Father had in mind for him to do. So him doing it would be impossible for one whose will is completely submitted to the will of the Father. It's mm-hmm. it's not a power difference. It's a, a submission difference. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. That's, I think, important about the character of Jesus. I mean, it is wonderful up until the point where we're asking for something and he doesn't give it to us and then it's hard. Right. Because <laughs> he could answer all our prayers. Yes, he could. Yes, he could. <laughs> but he does not, obviously. So in John 8, we get an interesting, fascinating, and moving story about Jesus and this woman that is caught in adultery. But with that, there is a note within the text. So I have the ESV open in front of me, and it says, The earliest manuscripts do not include... John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. So if it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, why, where did it come from, and why is it in our Bible today? It's a good question. And so one of the things that we we don't think about a lot is how the Bible came about, right? We have a completed version and have had for a very long time. But this Bible was was put together by the followers of, of Jesus, Christians, over the course of some time. And this there was this story that was not does not appear to have originally been written um, al- along with any of the four Gospels. But it we find it in old manuscripts sometimes attached to different, like to, to the Gospel of Luke. Um, it's been put in different places in John, mm-hmm. in some of the old manuscripts. And what we realize from that is that the earliest church saw that this 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 pericope, mm-hmm. um, little story, this little yeah. story is perfectly in tune with the gospel message. 
it was it's old. And so it really could have been written by one of the apostles. I mean, the way scrolls worked is things came off sometimes from the end. It might have been originally part of one of the gospels. But um, even if it wasn't, the church, the community, the Holy Spirit sees in this the Holy Spirit's authority mm-hmm. and inspiration. And so includes it into the, the gospels, puts it here because it fits. It doesn't fit perfectly, but it fits well. And what we see in here is a powerful message of grace and forgiveness. Um, and there's there's deep layers to this that go back to Jewish culture and all mm-hmm. of it. But the the um, you should not read that and think, oh, this story that I love isn't just as good, right, and true as the rest of them. Because the community of the Holy Spirit has looked at it and said, yes, this story is in, in teaching with the teaching or in step with the teaching of the apostles. So you can trust it. There is a parable that is, I don't know, it's when we think about what life in the kingdom is supposed to be. It's in Matthew 18, 21, uh, 21 to 35. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Mm-hmm. And so it starts with kind of a famous question from Peter to Jesus. Uh, Peter comes and he asks, you know, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And so I'd love, and then he tells this story about uh, a king who forgives a debt of one of his servants, a great, tremendous debt. In fact, the um, the the 10,000 talents, talents were the biggest like money amount and 10,000 is the biggest Greek numeral. So it's, it's like a billion dollars, you know, the, it's a, it's the biggest amount of money they can write down mm-hmm. in one go here. And so that's what the servant is, is forgiven. But then the servant turns around and refuses to forgive a much smaller debt. Um, what's going on here? Like, what is God's, what is, what is God's forgiveness, which is what we take from this? right? The king forgiving the servant is like God's forgiveness of us. Um, it's, I mean, we can't forgive like he does because we're not him. Like, but it doesn't, it seem like we're being told to forgive like he does. Can you help me make sense of this? How are Christians supposed to live this out? Part of the point that Jesus is trying to convey is just our sense of that whatever happens to be happening in my life is not the center of the universe. And that we, the scope of things is very different than I think our, our common perceptions. And so, you know, throughout the Old Testament, we have seen not, it's not really a tension, but just a, hmm, I don't know what the right word is, but just the, the relationship between, you know, when you sin against a neighbor that's it. You know, you've wronged them, but then also under the covenant, you've wronged the creator, even though you may not have directly sinned against him. But, you know, doing something against something else can also be a sin against the creator. And so I think that, you know, when God offers us forgiveness, we, you know, we can never earn that from him. We can never pay it back, you know, and I think that's part of the point with this this servant. He could never pay back that debt, and it's it would be remarkable to to even 
know like how did he even rack up that amount of debt i mean and it's the hyperbole right jesus yes. is over exaggerating to make his point but just that more debt than any of his listeners could conceive of you know nowadays people go into a de- debt for billions of dollars for reasons and we're like oh it's fine you know but yeah and so i think that just this idea of like what god has forgiven us of you know the the, the debt of sin just against god is I don't want to say that it's, well, I don't want to necessarily say that it's greater than the debt that we, you know, that we would owe towards other people, because that's also the debt that we owe towards God. Like, it's all of one, you know, of one piece. And so, yeah, just to say that that God's forgiveness of us means that we should be quick to forgive. And I think it's important to note, you know, the dynamic here. So it's God forgiving servant A. But then it's not also servant B forgiving servant A. It's servant A realizing, okay, this gigantic debt of mine has been released, which means that I need to release the debts around me. Not, okay, good, so you should also forgive me like God forgives me. You know, So it's not a, it's God forgiving servant A and servant A forgiving servant B. And that's reflecting B. that into the world, yeah. Right. You know, rather than him being like, well, God forgave me, so you have to too. <laughs> well, because I, I just think that's an important, of course. because I think that often how we take it is like that. Yes. And, and that's not the idea at all. <laughs> what is what Even is, if that would be a true statement, logically, you know, to say, oh, well, if God forgave me of a billion sins, then, you know, but it's Jesus is saying, you know, as you realize, as you experience God's forgiveness, Peter you know, you should then be extending that to other people. Because what is it to you? You know, this little debt that's been cleared, be, you know, compared to the the vast debt that's been cleared by God on your behalf. Well, it's it's it gives tones of the jubilee, mm-hmm. right? The releasing of all debts that is talked about in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of Old Testament and going on And that Jesus announces at the beginning of Luke. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a lot going on here with that has Old Testament tones to this. Um the, it's a big break from the, the practice of Jewish faith at the time. Uh, this was a very common question asked of rabbis at the time. And the most common answer, kind of the consensus was that you should forgive three times and then break relationship. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That feels more right to us, doesn't it? Like the, it's a more natural human inclination. I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you again because I'm really generous. I've forgiven you a third time. And Jesus busts that. The the old wineskin of the Jewish faith will not handle the the breaking in of the kingdom here. The jubilee of God forgiving debts. Um, also, there's a reference to uh, Genesis character, Lamech, here. So Lamech is mm. kind of talking about his own mm-hmm. wickedness. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, well, Cain was, yeah. you know, this way seven times. You know, he was wicked. I, I will be uh, avenged 77 times. You know, the, my wickedness is so much greater than his was kind of this unbounded wickedness and jesus flips it as he quotes him and says actually what's required for kingdom members is unbounded forgiveness this we should not take the number here as a literal one so the greek can be taken either to say um, 77 times or seven times 70 times and if you're worried about whether he means 70 or 490 (laughs) you are literally doing the opposite of what he wants right, you to do. Right. It's an unlimited amount of forgiveness we're supposed to have. And if, if, cause that's what God has for us, right? We we're forgiven for our sins. That's that forgiveness is absolute. Once we become mm-hmm. his, 
And if we're going to enjoy that, if we believe that we live in a kingdom where debts are released, we're showing we don't really believe that if we don't release the debts to us. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if our debts are forgiven, but we don't forgive our debtors, you know, then, then we're showing that we don't really want to be a part of the kingdom. We want the, the excitement of it, the good. I'm glad all my debts get forgiven, but if Mm -hmm. I'm not willing to forgive mine, then I don't actually want the Jubilee. I just want an easy time and, and we're called to let them go. And forgiveness is, is, is tricky. It's, it's this thing that is easy to do until you have something real to forgive. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that, that a person receives no consequences or any of those, cause those exceptions always come up. You know, I talked to a woman, um, just a little less than a month ago who is, is, has a, um, a man in her life, not anymore, but had, had assaulted her. And she, asked, she said she's struggling to forgive him. And that's, that's hard. I do think that the the Christian goal or ideal would be for her to come to some form of forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that that she's fine with what happened. That doesn't mean that he shouldn't face consequences. It means that she's given up her right to hold it over him. Um, and I, I think that's just so important. I mean, it's there's an inherent warning in here from Jesus towards the servant A's of the world of like, it's not going to go well for you. <laughs> if in the end, you know, because he really was forgiven by the king, but then he was punished, <laughs> you know, the punishment came back around because not because of the giant debt that had already been settled, but because of the little debt that he couldn't forgive. So couldn't one place settle. where we see this dynamic working out a lot right now, and they've been in, in the past few years, it's happened again and again in our culture, our megachurch pastors being shown to be using their authority improperly with women in their congregation. And then what often has happened, um, again, these, the, the scandals come back around, is it's revealed that the woman is villainized, mm-hmm. right? The, the church as a whole will forgive the pastor, and the woman is, is expected to um, apologize, forgive, repent, yeah. um, forgive, et cetera. And that's being used against her by the authority above her. Right. That is, that, I mean, that is exactly what servant A does in this. Right. When the pastor says, yes, I've sinned, please forgive me. The church forgives him and then says, now you need to forgive me too, woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and ex- excommunicates her if she won't. That is, that offends Jesus to his core, I think. And I'm glad that those stories have come to light. Yeah. Well, and I think that that in some ways is why this parable is aimed at the ones in power. You know, because they're the ones who can manipulate the whole thing to their advantage. And Jesus is saying, nope, God sees you (laughs) and he'll get you Mm -hmm. in the end if you don't, you know, forgive. Absolutely. And walk in righteousness. So we also see in these chapters, well, I mean, throughout all the gospels, but uh, just through a lot of our passages that Jesus uh, talks about faith commends people for their faith, is startled by community's lack of faith. Maybe first, just a more general question, like what does he mean by faith? Yeah, that's a good question. So the there's a tendency for us to read faith as just a mental thing. Um, it's, a, it's a synonym of belief, mm-hmm. right? And so we, we often equate them, that it is a believing thing. But then we come to this conflict we see later in the letters I mean, James tells us that the demons believe mm-hmm. and they certainly don't have faith, right? And so it has to mean more than believe. 
And so what what you and I have come to appreciate is a, a word for the Greek word that's translated as faith, because that Greek word is also translated as faithfulness, mm-hmm. which is a, a action word, is allegiance. Um, it's I used to say with the youth group, it's belief plus obedience. Mm-hmm. It's it's you you have the beliefs and you live in accordance with them. Allegiance is one word that sort of grabs both of those ideas, and it's a word we're familiar with. It's a, a belief in God and in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and then an effort to live in accordance with that belief. Not as though that effort is what saves us, because it's not, but when it is allegiance, when it is faith, when it is an outpouring of our beliefs, it is a confirmation of those beliefs, and it's like the package is completed, and that's what entrance into the covenant looks like, or... or being part of the covenant looks like. It's not done perfectly. It's not expected to be done perfectly. God does not expect us to be able to do this perfectly. Um, but but allegiance is that word that I feel like kind of grabs all these different pieces mm. of faith best. Yeah. And so in one of these stories, you know, Jesus walks on the water. Uh, the disciples leave him behind. Or I guess he sends them ahead. Uh, and he comes to them on the water, famous scene, and a couple of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, I think, also record that Peter came out to him, or at least a little way out to him onto the water. Mark, which would probably be Peter's Gospel, does not mention this detail, which I've always thought is funny. (laughs) But the other two remember it, and so, you know, Peter takes a few steps, then he gets frightened by the storm and starts to sink, calls out for Jesus to save him. Jesus, of course, does. And then says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so taking what you just said, you know, faith and allegiance and everything else, like kind of help us map that onto, like, what did Peter do? What is this doubt or this fear of the storm? You know, so when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, like what did, what does he mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, This is one of those stories that you will miss the importance and the significance unless you put yourself in the boat, right? If you you can imagine this moment where you are, you're in a boat being buffeted by waves um, and wind, and then all of a sudden you look out and you see Jesus walking to you across the water. And, and you, you've, I mean, he just fed 5,000 people. This is a story that comes immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. So he does miracle things, right? Mm-hmm. But then he calls to you. And there's this belief in the ancient world that, that you could follow your rabbi anywhere. Like all social conventions allowed you to go anywhere your rabbi went. If he was an important person that was admitted into an event, if you were his disciple, you also followed him in. They, they used to say it as a blessing, you know, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, you know, walking behind him, being covered in his dust. Um, and so Peter stands up, he's, and he, I, I, I mean, steps onto the water and it holds him. And, and it seems like what's, what's allowing him to do this is not only the power of, of God. Um, it's the power of God in connection with his, his obedience, his allegiance, but then he gets distracted, right? He's, so he's got his eyes on Jesus. And while his eyes are on Jesus, the man stands on water. And then he, he remembers what he's doing and where he's at. And he sees the, the waves and, and he's afraid. And the moment that happens, he starts to fall. So Jesus grabs him and pulls him up. So what's, what did he do 
um, he forgot for a moment that when he's following Jesus, anything is possible. I think that's what it was. Being distracted by the waves, being distracted by the wind, Jesus lost sight of who his Lord was. Peter lost sight. Yeah, sorry, Peter, not Jesus. Peter <laughs> lost sight of who his, his, his Lord was and, and doubted. Um, and by doubt, I mean he thought more of the power of the wind and the waves than he did of Jesus. Mm. I love this story. Um, I So a personal anecdote. I, I don't know if Ben's heard this. I know that I've, I've mentioned it in sermons before. When I was a brand new Christian, right around 18 years old, I remember hearing about this story in a young adult group. And so I went home and I'm home first. None of my parents are home. Like I said, I'm 18 years old. And the, the we had a swimming pool. And I remember thinking like, do I believe or not? And so I got onto the deck of my swimming pool and I even had this thing. I started to take off my shoes, but then I was like, wait a second. If I take off my shoes, am I showing that I don't actually believe? And so I put them back on and then I took a step and I fell in the water. Because I think one of the things that we learn about faith is that, yes, um, I mean, Jesus talks about faith the size of a mustard seed. You can say to a mountain, to move and it'll get up and throw itself in the sea that does not mean a person of faith every time they say to a mountain it will move right it what it means is that when what god has called you to do is humanly impossible that doesn't matter because it becomes possible because of of him his power followed by your faith and well, we do the same thing that Jesus does, right? We try and pay attention, learn what the Father's doing, and then we also do that. Yes. And so when we are told to do something that strikes us as not impossible, possible. <laughs> you know, it's like that's the choice we have. It's like, do I? And that can be forgiving someone. You know, I mean, I think that's some of the hardest steps that the Lord ever calls us to walk in many of our lives is, is forgiving people who absolutely harmed us and hurt us. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. The Lord does not seem interested in killing me because he's had many of opportunities well, that's... to do... I can't suffer anymore if I'm dead, Ben. That's true. Well, I mean... I <laughs> That would be a very big disappointment. <laughs> <laughs>